on the record flips to the B side. Grab a chicken kebab and a beer, find a sunny spot to sit, and kick back for B-Side's end of summer potluck, a veritable smorgasbord of quirky stories from both coasts, Alaska, and one producer's drawer of unmentionables, as on the record, flips to the B-Side. The fog is lifting in the Bay Area, kids are doing their back-to-school shopping, and the sun is starting to set all too early. I'm Mia Lobel, and on this month's B-Side, a little something we like to call our end-of-summer potluck. One of my favorite things to do on late summer evenings, besides barbecue, is hike. And one of my favorite places to go is Mount Tamalpais, just north of San Francisco. There's this one hike where you come up on an old rusted-out car lying upside down next to the trail. It's been there for years, but on my last hike, I decided to get a closer look. So I'm poking around underneath what used to be the front bumper, and I find a blue Tupperware container. Inside there's some random stuff, a bottle of water, a handkerchief, some dried flowers, a notebook, and a pen. I decide to add some coins to the Tupperware, sign my name, and I put the container back where I found it. I felt like I'd found a buried treasure someone's secret stash that no one was supposed to know about. But it turns out I had unintentionally found a geocache, a prize of sorts in a sport, I guess you would call it, where hikers use satellites to guide them in a high-tech scavenger hunt. Our first story comes from the eastern seaboard, where besides Caitlin Kim decided to try geocaching. Not content to search for one cache like I found, Caitlin recently took part in the Southern New Hampshire Geocache Rally. The email from Chad Farrow, henceforth known as the Rally Master, was clear. Look for a guy in a green camp chair. Luckily for me, when I showed up at 8.30 on a Saturday morning, there was only one guy in a green camp chair in an otherwise empty park. Farrow spent the better part of two weeks organizing the Geocache Rally. And if you're wondering, just what is geocaching? He's got a simple definition. When I explain geocaching to people who've never heard of it, I usually use the term treasure hunt because, you know, it's something they can understand. Forget the Goonies with their old parchment map where X marks the spot. Armed with a global positioning system or GPS device, this is high-tech treasure hunting. The GPS satellite system was demilitarized in 2000, allowing the average user to pinpoint locations to within 20 feet. To celebrate, a man in Oregon hit a container filled with trinkets, posted its coordinates on the web, and a sport was born. There are now more than 62,000 caches hidden in 183 countries. But today, we're only looking for seven of them. The rally master says we may not be going far, but there will be lots of traveling. Basically, to find each cache, they have to go to a spot where they find information. Like maybe it's a sign that has a certain piece of data on it they need. And from that data, they have to do some simple math to find the exact coordinates of the geocache. The rally master has put me together with two other women about my mom's age. Simone Hewitt, the first to arrive, tells me she enjoys this outdoor adventure so much that on her vacation to the Dominican Republic, she and her husband spent a day and $45 in taxi fare geocaching there. It sort of kind of gives purpose to the hike, gives you a chance to be outdoors and not just wandering aimlessly. You're kind of excited about looking for something and you find it and it's nothing, but it's, it's great. You feel exhilarated and then you come back. 
You mean, can you go out in nature and walking and see the trees and the birds that are enough? No, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Diane Franny rounds out our team of three. When she arrives, the rally master hands out the clue packets and starts going over the rules. Starting with number one, most important, bait, all local laws, no speeding, no legal parking, no trespassing. The rules like are that. fairly lengthy, um, but the highlights are five teams right. will be leaving in 30-minute increments, <laughs> and in each cache um, is an orange flag that we have to collect. No heavy bushwhacking uh, is necessary, good. and my favorite, uh, hike efficiently. In other words, no running. At 8.55, the rally master says the magic words. And go. We head out in Diane's maroon minivan. About a mile away, we hop out of the car and start walking, all eyes on the small GPS device resting in Simone's hand. Unfortunately, 20 minutes later, we're no closer to finding the cache. How are we doing in the coordinates? We're way over. We're 326. Oh, well, follow from parking here. Follow paved trail to where the trail turns south. We already walked. Well, for nothing. I think we're, we're going southwest. Okay, so. so we have to go back? The answer is yes. Simone is undaunted. It happens. And I'm, I told you when I first met you, I'm notorious for going the wrong way first. The coordinates should get you in the general area of the cache, and with the help of a written hint, like under a boulder, you hopefully find it. Diane finds our first cache, and hot on our heels is team two, so we hike efficiently. Okay, we run to the minivan. I'd like to say it's our one and only setback, but it's not. We have trouble finding the next clue necessary to get to the coordinates of the second cache. By the time we get to the site, Team 2 is leaving. Now, if Simone enjoys the chase, Diane enjoys the places the chase takes her to. So she says while we hunt for our second flag in a wooded area next to a river. What a beautiful spot. See, this is why I love it, because I mean, I live right close here and I've never even known this place existed. There's a little bridge up ahead, too. Isn't that cute? The hint here is a group of trees. I get sent to one cluster, and as I make my way around poison ivy and through some knee-high grass I fear is home to many ticks, I catch a glimpse of blue under a rock near the base of the trees. I found it! There you go! And off we go. There's not too much time to bask in the glory of finding my first cache. We still have five more flags, and unfortunately, more setbacks still ahead of us. It turns out you can't get good, or any coordinate readings, when there's a lot of tree cover, or even inside the car. Doesn't the frustration level for this game sort of get to you after a while? Oh, no, I don't know. No. Not for me, no. No? I, I am like in my glory yeah. right now. I'm, I'm just, just having so much fun. This is like, it's oh. not the winning. It's no. The, it's the, it's the chase. It's the, yeah. Over the next couple of hours, we all learn a lot about each other. Like, how both Diane and Simone are nurses, both love chunky chocolate bars, and are mothers of five whose kids actually got them interested in geocaching. How Diane's moving from New Hampshire and wants to hide a cache before she goes, to leave a little bit of herself behind. How Simone is growing increasingly late for a family reunion. It takes a long time, but eventually the three of us, tired but with seven flags and at least as many mosquito bites, get to the finish line. After traveling a total of about 50 miles, 
we wind up about a mile from where we started, at Rally Master Chad's house, where drinks, food, and Team 2 await us, as does our final time. I got five hours and 31 minutes. Um, the, the, the group that's already finished ahead of you did it in four hours and nine minutes. We may not have been fast, but we did finish. Still, sitting back drinking my soda, I can't help wondering if a parchment paper map where X marks the spot might not have gotten us to the finish line faster than the fancy high-tech GPS. For B-Side, I'm Caitlin Kim. From buried treasure to hidden, well, undergarments. Up next, this commentary from Claudine Zapp about what really lies beneath the decision to get married. I'm not one of those people who wears fancy lingerie. My undergarments could generously be described as chosen for practicality and comfort and not much more. My partner Larry is no help in this area, since he has no appreciation for the finer lingerie. Years ago, when we were first dating, I attempted a seduction scene with some complicated garter belt thing, and when I revealed it to him, he laughed hysterically. This was not the desired result. I never really tried again. When we finally decided to get hitched after 10 years of living together, I decided to be different and design my own dress, and found someone to make it. When I got to the dressmaker, she couldn't even measure me without the proper foundation, as she called it. I explained to her that I had a great foundation. Larry and I had been together for 10 years. We were in love. What more did we need? Lace and padding was the answer, and quickly. I started looking for just the right undergarment to wear under my dress. As I flipped through bridal magazines and saw page after page of lacy, flouncy underthings, I realized I was way out of my league. So I got my mom in the case. I guess you could call my mom a frilly feminist since she unapologetically wears all the girly stuff without compromising one ounce of her value system. She marched me down to a lingerie boutique where I was fitted for a corset, which, for the uninitiated, is strapless and laces up the back. As I waited for the saleswoman, I had a medieval moment. Back in the day, the corset was something to keep a woman in her place, hold her so tight she couldn't breathe, much less walk or run, or worse, speak her mind. Now here I was, Ms. Modern Woman, actually asking to get back into one. Forget sisterhood, I was a bride. The saleswoman brought me a selection of corsets in my size. One looked like a leotard out of Barbarella, and I rejected it. The second was just plain ugly, with no frills, and made from some kind of stretchy fabric that I think is supposed to minimize, but basically just made me sweat. I finally decided on a white lacy confection that was pretty, but not outlandish. As I stared at my very defined hourglass figure in the mirror, with my mother ooing and eyeing by my side, I wondered just when had I fallen down the rabbit hole. 
After a decade of living in a marriage-free zone, and never once needing anything more complicated than Hanes Herway bras and undies for my wardrobe, I was finally committing to a ceremony, but turns out I was also committing to far more. Larry and I had put a lot of thought into whether we even needed to get married. And now that we finally were publicly celebrating our love, I was also expected to trade in my Calvins for a corset. While I wasn't buying into a 1950s marriage in any way, there was one tradition that couldn't be avoided. So there I was, trussed up in boning with my woman's lib mother as co-conspirator. My world had turned upside down. But hold on. It wasn't my identity that I had left in the changing room, just a more informal mode of dress. I was still an alternative indie bride. I just happened to be wearing a very constricting undergarment. I put myself in this lingerie by choice. It didn't mean I was becoming a Stepford wife. So on the day of my wedding, I shed my cotton under things and stepped into my wedding wonderland wear. I wore my corset and my dress all night long. I said I do, I danced, and I even limboed. That night, when I got undressed, I was confronted with the temporary legacy of my undergarment. Where my corset had been was now a phantom corset of red welts. I vowed to never wear it again. Almost a year after my wedding, I'm back to my cotton comfort. I still have my corset in my closet, where it's going to stay. It's there as a reminder of my ceremony. And like the 10 years that led up to the ceremony, that corset really did provide a very solid foundation. For B-Side, I'm Claudine Zapp. You're listening to KALX 90.7 FM. Stay tuned as On The Record flips to the B-Side. You're listening to B-Side. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month we're bringing you an eclectic buffet of stories as we serve up our end-of-summer potluck show. For a lot of people, the last few weeks of summer are a perfect time to get in one last long weekend, a short road trip, or a quick visit somewhere to avoid the inevitable start of fall. Tamara Keith found an unlikely tourist destination hiding practically in her own backyard. She brings us along on this tour of the Forestier Underground Gardens in Fresno. I drove by the gardens virtually every day for more than a year before noticing they were there. They're located on Fresno's busy Shaw Avenue, surrounded by fast food restaurants, motels, and gas stations. And from the road, there's really nothing about them that stands out. A rusted and faded sign peeks out over a fenced-in yard. The plants are barely visible. But friends kept telling me about these amazing underground gardens. So one day, I finally slowed down, parked my car on the street, and ventured inside. A long graduated stone staircase leads me to the underground world of Baldessari Forestier, a Sicilian who immigrated to the U.S. more than 120 years ago. I'm greeted by Baldessari's great-grandnephew. My name is Andre. I live here, but originally it was the home of my great-uncle, Baldessari, who came out here about 100 years ago to be a farmer. It turned out the land was filled with rock, a thick layer of hardpan that was below the topsoil, so thick that it was too impractical to farm a hundred years ago. Andre is 42 years old, but he seems much younger. He's wearing a polo shirt and a pair of gym shorts with a big rip on the right side. As he tells Baldessari's story, his face glows with a combination of sweat and wonderment. He says his great uncle decided to live on this land and find someplace else to farm. 
Then summer hit, and he discovered something I know all too well. It gets hot in Fresno. Very hot. The kind of baking heat that makes you just want to go hide in a hole somewhere. And that's exactly what Baldessari did. Using his farm tools, he started to dig. And he didn't stop. In the first summer here, he begins to carve his cellar. Over the next 40 years, he builds a massive complex that is actually his home here in the valley that consists of about 40 rooms and, and is very close to about 12,000 square feet. On this day, about 20 people have assembled for the noon tour of the gardens. Andre's 70-year-old mother is leading. Lorraine Forestier has dyed black hair and a spicy sense of humor. See, if I dug a hole, it would look like a hole, but look how nice his looks. If I take you guys above ground and give you a shovel, can you dig a hole that looks that nice? No. <laughs> now, if you're kind of tall, watch your head. Where she takes us into Baldessari's original cellar, which is about 10 feet below the ground. It's a small, surprisingly bright room with grapevines growing over an open-air skylight. And at that time, everything from that arch back was solid dirt. If you would have told the kid he was going to carve that out, he'd figure you've been drinking the vino. All he wanted to do was get out of our heat. Working alone, Baldessari created an engineering marvel, a maze of underground chambers with furniture carved into the stone walls and planter boxes in nearly every room. Now this is his first tree, and we know when he planted the first tree. Later on, we don't have any ideas. In three years, it'll be 100 years old, and it looks like a teenager. I got fat, and it didn't. The slender orange tree begins 15 feet underground and reaches up just beyond the ceiling, peaking its leafy crown and brightly colored fruit through a skylight. Trees like this one are planted throughout the gardens. During the winter, rain sustains them. In the summer, they are irrigated with water from a nearby well. We continue walking. Up here it gets a little bit dark. Once you turn the corner, it gets lighter. And we've got a new policy here. The men can't pass me here unless they kiss me first. <laughs> Makes them go back to their wives real fast. Lorraine leads us through Baldessari's living quarters, two bedrooms, a kitchen, and a living room. Baldessari created a tiny peephole so that he could see people above ground approaching his house without having to go to the surface. Lorraine asks an unsuspecting man in our group to try it out. Now, if you bend down, stick your head inside the fireplace and look over there. No, over that way. She then pretends to give him a little spanking. I patted more men on the butts from more country in the world than any woman in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Joking aside, Lorraine has an affection for these underground gardens that even she doesn't quite understand. She needs surgery on one of her knees, and it hurts her to walk when she leads the tours. But every time she tries to retire, she says there's something about the gardens that draws her back, that won't let her leave. It was the same for Baldessari. He continued working on his underground home right up until he died, still a bachelor, in 1946. Now Andre is picking up where his great uncle left off. He plans to finish carving out the rooms that Baldessari didn't complete. Even I look at things differently now that I've experienced the gardens for myself. Now when I'm driving down Shaw Avenue, especially on hot summer Fresno days, I look past the fast food joints and big box retailers that dominate that landscape. And instead, I think about Baldessari's underground oasis, hidden just below the surface. For B-Side, I'm Tamara Keith. And finally, 
there's one place way up north where no matter the season, it's always Christmas, 24-7, all year round. B-side Sarah Neal takes us to North Pole, Alaska. I arrived in Alaska May 27th. I had a summer job as a reporter in Fairbanks, but I knew no one, and my only housing opportunity was a phone number for a boarding house at which I hoped I could find a shared room. On top of this, in my hand I held a map that scared me. It said, Fairbanks is surrounded by the following towns, Fox, Muskox, and 30 miles away, North Pole. It all felt very remote. So to conquer this feeling, I resolved to get out and get a look around. What was that up there? Probably a dump truck. A dump truck? Have you seen those things before where you're from? <laughs> I met Jeremy Smith at work. And since he grew up in North Pole, I decided that was the best place to start. On the right is a good example of North Pole construction quality for you. It's got wood siding of a sort that you used to buy in store, like maybe Kmart back in the 70s exposed insulation all over the place. Not all the houses look like this, but many do. The town of 2,000 people is a two-hour drive south of the Arctic Circle, nowhere near the actual North Pole. But Jeremy says that doesn't matter. North Pole, Alaska is Santa Claus, Christmas, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Life-size wooden Christmas scenes dot the highway that runs through town, and almost every light post is decorated with red and white stripes. We actually spent taxpayer money buying special light poles that look like candy canes, have a little hook on the top, and that was a bone of contention for some people. On Rudolph Lane now. Our tour continues. On the left is Santaland RV Park, North Pole, Alaska. One of my friends from high school works here. We'll just drive in here really quick. We pull in and I meet Jeremy's friend from high school, Philip Wyman. Owner and manager of Centerland RV Park. We set up available space for RV campers or recreational vehicle travelers and I mostly cater to the independent traveler. I uh, don't usually cater to caravan traffic. What was it like growing up being continuously surrounded by Christmas? Should I let Philip answer first? I have to think of my answer. Well, for me, I believe that every single town has something to draw the community together to say this is what we're all about. I actually heard of a story of a town that they had a hill and it was like so many feet from being a mountain. It was their mountain, but actually like technically was classified as a hill. So the whole town got together and they added dirt to this hill till it actually became a mountain. And that was what bound them together as a town. Well, for me, it's not about, a, you know, Santa Claus. It's the fabric of what has, you know, defined who I am and uh, the person that I choose to be. <laughs> I know. Jeremy did actually add one thing. North Pole is where all Santa letters are sent. And then, because it's the right thing to do, they are all answered by the citizens of the town. This sounds very sweet to me, but it can be a challenge, Jeremy said if you still believe in Santa Claus. When I became an older kid, all of a sudden, you know, guess what we're doing today, kids? What's that? We're answering Santa Claus letters. And when I heard about that, I thought, well, wait a minute, did you steal them from him? And then I, I came to the realization, oh, okay. So he has so many letters, he can't answer them all himself, so you're helping. It's at this point that I learned the story of North Pole. It goes like this. 
In the early 1940s, a guy who dressed up as Santa Claus around Christmas time decided to build a general store. While he was building it, a group of kids recognized him as Santa. He couldn't reintroduce himself as someone else, so the store was named Santa Claus House, and the town, because of the store, was later named North Pole. The founder, Philip's wife's grandfather, doesn't dress up like Santa anymore, and the general store is now a gift shop. But the family still runs it. It sits on the new Richardson Highway next to the RV park. They hire someone to play Santa and keep a real live reindeer in a pen outside. There used to be two in here. I think one of them became sick. Yeah, it's kind of sad. <laughs> next to the pen, sweeping the walk, was Philip's wife's aunt, Linda File. She tells us she and her sister started working at Santa Claus House when they were in high school. Her sister married the son of the founder, so Linda still comes by to help out. She says she's also worked at the post office. I had a letter that I sent to Santa when I was little, and Jerry said it probably ended up here. Is that true? Well, what happens with the Santa mail is a lot of it does just end up going from post office to post office, and someone says, "Oh, you know, North Pole, Alaska—that's where they send all that stuff." Do you have kids? Yes, I do. Yeah, they're my youngest is a ten-year-old. When did they stop believing in Santa living in North Pole? We all just—we never really talk about not believing in Santa. <laughs> you know, there's just some happiness involved with that. Wow. This is where people come to visit Santa Claus because Chris Kringle, which is the name of the man who works as Santa here, looks so authentic. His name is Chris Kringle. Yes, it is. You can ask to see his driver's license. His name is Chris Kringle. Is he here today? Yes, he is. Do you think he'd talk to me? Oh, I think he would. That's excellent. Exclusive interview with Santa Claus coming up next. While we wait for Santa, Jeremy shows me around the store: T-shirts, a penny pressing machine, postcards, and a couple of surprises. A room dedicated to a display of political artifacts. Goldwater, vote in '64. Women for Stevens. And another room filled with a collection of toys, including a doll like the one I got for Christmas when I was two. It made me nostalgic. <laughs> and then Chris Kringle returned from lunch. Now there's something I want to tell you. After we spoke to Linda, we learned more about Chris's story, and this is what we learned: Chris didn't know a lot of love for much of his life in the lower 48, and then one day he had a vision. In the vision, God told him to change his name and be Santa Claus for North Pole, Alaska. People say the vision made every hair on the man's body turn white, except for one place on his arm, where his friend grabbed him and asked him what he was seeing. So, always the young, eager reporter. I calculate my interview strategy. I determine to learn what he did for a living before he became Santa Claus in North Pole, Alaska, and if, through dedicating himself in such an unusual way to such an unusual career choice, he found an unusual amount of satisfaction. <laughs> But now it's my turn to see him. I walk up the steps and do something very different. I sit in his lap. I was going to ask you for for Christmas stuff. I haven't I haven't seen you for a really long time. Well, that's because I've been here and you weren't, <laughs> right? <laughs> What was I thinking? Well, probably out playing baseball and having fun with your friends, and hopefully going to bed on time as well Always. as eating your supper. Good, <laughs> good. See, see, there you go. <laughs> I love you back. <laughs> A whole bunch just because. Merry Christmas.
Thank you, Santa. Yes. Take care of yourself. <laughs> Did you want to talk to him? No, I'm okay. Are you sure? I'll come back um, right. later. I didn't ask the big questions. They somehow fell out of my head. What stopped me? I puzzled about it for a while, and I think I figured it out. Santa Claus is all about knowing what to expect. You decide what you want, you ask for it, you get it. It's the same routine every year. So it makes sense that here, at the beginning of my Alaskan adventure, on my own, 2,000 miles away from everyone and everything I've ever known, that it felt reassuring to do something familiar. I let the whole reporting thing go for a minute because it was nice, just for a moment, to join Chris's world, where North Pole really is the North Pole, and Christmas is every day. I knew what I was doing there, and Chris, the man in the Santa suit, was Santa Claus, who knows everything about me, who got me that doll when I was two. Sarah Neal is a student at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. That's all for this month's edition of B-Side. Our crew is Dave Gilson, Lissa Mudd, and Claudine Zapp. Tamara Keith is our senior producer. Our theme music was composed by Dave Kaufman. B-Side will return on October 1st. In the meantime, On the Record is back September 17th. I'm Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening. Yeah!